And please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 11, 1 is our passage this morning. Welcome those of you who are visiting us. Our normal pattern is to go verse by verse through the Bible, and we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians now. And so, uh, chapter 10, verse 14 through chapter 11, verse 1 is our text. I'm going to read from chapter 10, verse 6, just to kind of remind us. We've been gone a couple weeks from 1 Corinthians, just to remind us of the context here, and then launch us into our passage. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply what pagans, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor... Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question on the ground of conscience, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
I've entitled this message, Learning from Meals. Learning from Meals. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about eating, about meals, about fellowship at meals. I don't know if you've ever been to what's called a chef's table. You go to a restaurant where there's a well-known chef and there's this dining room, the special reserve dining room where you can watch the chef cook the food that you're going to eat. And he or she describes what they're doing. And here's how I saute the meat. Do you saute meat? I have no idea about cooking, but, but here's how I do what I do. And, and you kind of learn from the chef, and then you get to enjoy the feast. Well, in this passage here, chapter 10, 14 through 11, 1, there are two meals. I don't know if you caught that. He refers to the Lord's table in the first section, and then he refers to an evangelistic meal where an unbeliever invites you to dinner. And in those two meals, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us lessons about our loyalty, who our loyalty is to. In the first meal, we learn about loyalty to Christ. You can't be loyal both to Christ and to demons, and he'll explain that. In the second meal, it's evangelistic. Someone invites you to dinner. You're able to eat what they put in front of you. It's been offered to idols that was bought understandably, in the idol's temp or in the idol's marketplace, and you're able to eat it. He actually quotes Psalm 24 and says, the earth is the Lord's, eat freely. But there's someone there, another believer, that has a troubled conscience because that was once sacrificed to idols. And so Paul says, then don't eat it. So we learn about, in the first meal, loyalty to Christ, and the second meal, loyalty to Christ's people. So this passage is about our loyalty loyalty to Christ and to His people. We see that in both meals. Both meals teach us this. So, our, our uh, outline this morning, two lessons about loyalty from two meals. Meal one, what the Lord's table teaches us about loyalty to Christ, and meal two, what an evangelistic meal teaches us about loyalty to other Christians. So, that's our outline for the morning. Meal one, what the Lord's table teaches us about loyalty to Christ. Chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Paul's going to use, as I told you, the Lord's table to insist that we are exclusively devoted to Jesus. Now, that would have been uncommon to them. This wasn't just an Old Testament reality. It's also a first century reality that you worship multiple gods, this God for this, that God for that. And Paul's writing to the Corinthian church saying, that's not the way we worship our God. We worship the one true and living God, and we don't say on one hand, I know He's the one true and living God, but I'm also going to do these things because socially they've benefited me, and and this is just kind of what we do. And he's saying, no, you worship the one true and living God. You can't hold on to the things that people do when they worship other gods and be loyal to Christ at the same time. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, you understand this as, as Christians when you read in your Bible. Therefore, you have to understand that he's making an argument based on what he previously wrote. And so, just as a reminder, what did he previously write? That's why I read the first, uh, starting from chapter 10, verse 6 earlier. What did he previously write? He said, hey, the people of Israel claim to be God's people, but some of them were engaged in idolatry. Some of them were engaged in sexual immorality. Some of them grumbled against God and against their leaders. Some of them were um, 
were involved in sexual sin. Some of them didn't trust God. They put him to the test. And they fell. They were destroyed. So he's using it as a warning to say, listen, you may say that you wear the uniform of being a Christian, but remember that other people have said that and worshiped other gods at the same time. You can't do that, first century Christians. You can't do that, Corinthian Christians. You can't do that, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. You can't do that. You pick one. Therefore, flee from idolatry. Let that be a lesson to you. God will make the true believer stand. He will make the true believer stand. And how will the true believer stand? He will obey commandments. God will put in his heart to obey commandments. So we can say two things at once. We can say, God is faithful to make me stand on the final day. Well, we sung that. And we can also say, God will do that by putting in my heart a response to his commandments, to obey his commandments. That's how he does it. So we've heard about the fact that God will make a stand in that last day. We read that in verse 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, now what do you do? We'll just kind of sit back and trust God. Yeah, he'll get me there. Yes, he will, but he does it by you obeying commandments. So he gives commands. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run away with anything that competes with loyalty to Christ. I speak as to sensitive people, sorry, sensible people. They might be sensitive too, but he trusts that they're sensible also. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He's going to lay out his case, and he's saying, just reason with me for a moment. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, you understand what Mealy's talking about, right? The blood and the bread, the, the wine and the, the bread, the, the symbols of Christ's death. This is the Passover and now the Lord's Supper that he's talking about. So the, the New Testament church right away started, started participating in the Lord's Supper that he inaugurated there on the night before he died. And so he's saying, listen, we do that. We drink the, the, the symbol of the blood of Christ, we eat the symbol of the body of Christ, we participate with Christ, we are one with Him. We do that, so how can we do that and also participate in meals where idols are worshipped? The cup of blessing that we bless, the, the fact that this cup that we drink is a means of our blessing. When we drink, it's a symbol of the blood of Christ shed for us, and we get the blessings for that. So he calls it the cup of blessing. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is why so often we call the Lord's table communion. We're communing with him. We're brought into his death so that we'd be brought into his life. Now, just to clear up some theological issues here. Roman Catholics have determined that because of this, it means that every time you drink the juice or the wine and eat the bread, it's Christ's body being sacrificed all over again for you, which is literally heresy. Jesus died once for all, Hebrews 10 says. The death he died, he died to sin. He didn't need to offer continual sacrifices for sin. That one death on the cross was enough 
Let me read from the London Baptist Confession. In this ordinance, Lord's table, Christ is not offered up to His Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin, because that's already been done, but only a memorial of that one offering, offering up of Himself by Himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual offering of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. He died for my sin 2,000 years ago, and that was enough. He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed every time we take the Lord's table. That is, in these words, injurious to Him, makes less of what He did on the cross. So that's not what this passage teaches. But what does it participate? What does it mean to commune with Christ in the Lord's table? Let's go to the London Baptist Confession again. It means to spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified all the benefits of His death. When we eat that bread and drink that cup, it might seem like a small thing, but it's a way of us saying all that He died for, all that I earned in His or was given to me in his death, uh, I embrace. I receive the benefits of Jesus' death. And we're to remind ourselves of that regularly. What are some of the benefits that we receive from Jesus' death? Well, because he died, we had our sin and guilt removed from us. I mean, hear it again as if hearing it for the first time. God the Father looks at you as if you've never sinned if you're a Christian. I mean, we need to be reminded of that because of what Jesus did on the cross. We've had our sin and guilt removed. Isaiah 53, 6 pointed to Jesus Christ and it says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What else do we receive from Jesus' death? How do we commune with him in celebrating that? We remember that God's wrath has been removed from us. 1 John 4, 10 Here's love. Here's what love is. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. His Son absorbed all of the wrath that we were due. So there's the wrath of God aiming for us. Jesus steps in, absorbs the wrath of God. We go free. And we're to remember things like that when we participate in the Lord's table. What else? is a benefit from Christ's death. Reconciliation, we're made right with God again. Christians are the only people on the face of the planet who are right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Redemption or reconciliation, Romans 5, 10 to 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies and he reconciled himself to us. Now, Usually, when you do something wrong, you go and make it right. In the gospel, we did something wrong, and God came to us to make it right. Why? That's who He is by nature. He's a reconciler. And every time you take the bread and the cup, think about that. He came to me. He came to me in Jesus Christ, reconciled me, and I have communion with God. A couple others real quick. 
benefits of Christ's death. In Christ's death, we're redeemed from the power of sin. Now, we know that sin can still tempt. I mean, if you're alive and you're a Christian, you know that the flesh still lives, but it's not all-powerful anymore. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood, as of, lamb un, uh, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ. We had his, the shackles taken off of us before we had to sin. Why did we sin when we were unbelievers? Why did we sin? Because it was deep in our hearts. We were sinners, so therefore we sinned. Well, in Christ, He removes the power of sin and gives us, as Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 prophesied, gave us a new heart to want to do what He says. So every time we sin, we're choosing to do something we don't have to do. So as you take the bread and take the cup, remind yourself, I don't have to sin. He took that power away. Remind yourself of that. You're the only person in the world as a Christian who can say that you're freed from the power of sin. Something else he did, he defeated the power of darkness. We see that in Colossians 3. Satan is powerful. Satan is strong. Satan is called the little g, God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's powerful and strong, and you are the only one that's able to overcome him because of what Christ did. After he died, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Colossians 3.15. One final thing. One final benefit of Christ's death. Substitution. He took your place. When you eat the bread, drink the cup, remind yourself, I deserve to be the one executed the way Jesus was. I deserve to be the one suffering the wrath of God, but a substitute came for me because he loves me. It's a benefit of Christ's death. We get his righteousness, he gets our sin. That's substitution. So, I kind of do that little tangent, kind of pull over to the side of the road and walk through all that because we understand that when we partake of the Lord's table, we are reminding ourselves of the benefits that Christ won for us on the cross. That's what we participate in. Everything that he accomplished, we get from the cross, and the Lord's table reminds us of that reminds us of where we stand. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same bread. Now here Paul is doing what he so often does in 1 Corinthians. He's trying to get them to stop thinking of their Christian life as just them alone. That's what this church did. And then they would grab factions and have their, just their little group alone. We're the Apollos people. And he's saying, no, no, no. See that bread that you partake in on a regular basis? It's one piece. You're all part of that together. So often, New Testament Christians need help remembering this is not just you and God. You are brought into a family, an assembly, a group of people that you commune with, share with, and that's why we partake of the Lord's table together on a Sunday morning. We don't have you do it in small groups and in youth group. It's a reminder that we are one body, one local body assembled. 
We partake of the same bread. We're looking out for one another. If there are those engaged in idolatry, immorality, whatever it may be, we seek to help one another. That's what we do. So he's reminding them of the corporate need for examination and purity. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Remember, earlier in chapter 10, he was talking about the people of Israel. They all said they wore the same uniform, but some of them were living lives contrary to God. They were idolaters. So he's bringing that into this church. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? When they would eat the sacrifices, they were supposed to understand this is part of worshiping God. We're all one covenant people here. And so now he's telling the Corinthian church, the first century church, the 21st century church, when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you come together as one. And it's time to remember we are covenant people with God. And so it really doesn't make sense if there are some of those who come together and who are engaged in the things that the devil promotes and loves. It doesn't make sense. And this is the argument he's making. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, participants in the altar. Now, I want to just shed some light on um, a particular Old Testament sacrifice for you because he's drawing from that here. The peace offering. Most of the Old Testament sacrifices, you, you would come and bring an offering to the priest and it would be for different things and they would burn the, the, the meat and you wouldn't take that meat home. They would offer some of it to God and the priests would be allowed to eat it. That's how they, you know, earned their living, so to speak. It would be through the sacrifice that you offered. But there was a different kind of sacrifice, the peace offering. When you brought the peace offering, so you bring your, your animal, you bring it to the priest, and he kind of does all that he does with it, kills it. The priest was a butcher, basically, and puts it on the altar. Well, in the peace offering, you, the bringer of the offering in your family, you shared in some of that meat. And what's, what's more is you didn't just kind of take it home in doggy bags. You ate it there in the tabernacle complex or the temple complex. You ate it there with the priest. And it was a picture of you bring this offering of peace. God accepts it. And you, therefore, are eating with your family, with the priest. And get this, you're eating in the tabernacle, in the temple. You're eating with God. You're at peace with God, and how is that shown? You're sharing a meal with Him. And so, again, see, see what Paul's doing here for the Corinthians. It doesn't make sense that people doing that back in Old Testament Israel would then go out of that and start doing what the pagans do as they worship demons. You can't have it both ways. Corinthian church, learn from them. You can't have it both ways. When we come and partake of the Lord's table, it's a reminder that we are communing with, fellowshipping with, at peace with, having a meal with Christ. How do we then go out into the world and hold on, excuse sin, fail to repent of sin that the devil promotes? You can't do that. You can't do that. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now, now earlier he reminded them of what they had been saying. An idol's nothing. An idol doesn't live. It's not alive. We know that from Psalm 96 and a number of other places. An idol can't do anything. God alone is who we worship. God made the heavens. God's the creator. An idol's not even alive. So he's saying, now, 
By this argument, am I saying that an idol's alive? You, you're, some people are worshiping Christ, but then they're also worshiping the idols. No, I'm not saying the idol's alive. But what Paul is saying is, in the worship of an idol, there's, there's demonic influence behind that. When people engage in false religion, it's because the demons are active. What do I imply then? Verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice to idols, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So the logic is, don't go to the idols' temples and engage in those meals anymore. Don't do that. They're worshiping idols. Yes, an idol's not alive, but there's, when they're doing that, they're really worshiping demons who are alive. Demons are behind false religion. Here's the one true religion from God Himself, that He sent His Son to die for sinners. And sinners go to heaven because of what Christ did for them, not because of what they do, how many prayers they pray, what things they bow down to. We go to heaven because of Christ's work and Christ's work alone. That's true religion. Anything that tries to grab some of that and add human merit to it is false religion. And that comes exactly from Satan, from demons. It might look religious, but they wear robes, but they have the incense, but they're so devout. Are they trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Well, they trust in Jesus, but they also trust in their own good works. Then it's false. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans. So what am I saying? Am I saying that an idol is alive? No, but there's a demon behind false religion. And so when they go to the idol's temple and worship the idol, they're sacrificing to demons. You can't do that as a Christian. Now, remember this. A few weeks ago, as we introduced um, this section, I reminded you that these people wanted to say that Jesus is alive, He's the only one we worship, but they also wanted to go to the idol's temple and engage in the activity there because they said, we're not worshiping the idols, but so much of social interaction and business interaction and familial connections happened in the idol's temple. And he's very clearly over these few chapters said, you cannot do that as a Christian. As a Christian, you just cannot have what the world does and what Christ does and be okay. You've got to choose at some point, Christ or the world. And that's what he's getting at. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then this, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What's he mean by are we stronger than he is? If you profess to be a Christian and you say, but I'm also going to do what these people do. I'm going to have it both ways. He's saying, listen, your God doesn't share you with others. Your God's faithful to you, loyal to you. Your God loves you. You're His. Think of the picture in Ephesians 5 of Christ being the groom and us being the bride. Christ doesn't share us with other grooms. Why? Because He's mean, doesn't let us have any fun. No, because He's good and loves us. He's enough for us. He's all satisfying. He's all loving. 
He's truly good to us. So God is said to be a jealous God in the Old Testament and in the New. So so when you try to worship God, but then engage in what the devil promotes and hold on to it and love it and pursue it, you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. And are you stronger than Him? He will do something about that. He will judge. You see this in the book of Hosea. We'll be going through this uh, as, as groups in this church. In the book of Hosea, God is shown to be the faithful husband who's continually been cheated on. It's good that he's jealous. It says something about his love for us, doesn't it? Are you stronger than him? Can you get away with this without incurring judgment on yourself? No. Go back to the earlier part of chapter 10. They said that they were God's people, but they engaged in all of this demonic activity, and they were judged. You're not stronger than God. So you can't have it both ways. Now, every sports fan, I'm sorry, you got a pastor who's a sports fan. Sorry, that's a lot of illustrations. Sorry. Um, any sports fan knows you can't, be, you, you can't be for two different teams in the same rivalry. So, so are you a Michigan State fan or an Ohio, or, sorry, a Michigan fan or an Ohio State fan? I kind of like both. That's not allowed. <laughs> somewhere in some athletic fan's handbook, somewhere you're violating something there. You can't do that. Mets or Yankees? Ah, I like them both. <laughs> um, you cannot do that. That's a silly picture of something that Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You have one love. It's either Christ or the things that Satan promotes and exacerbates and continues and authors. Where's the love? Where is it? Which side of the fence is it on? This is really called loyalty, and he uses the Lord's table to have you examine your loyalty, have us examine our loyalty. We can't engage in things, again, that Satan promotes in an unrepentant fashion. Now, now all of us sin every day, right? We're tempted to sin, we give in to sin, but, but here's the normal Christian pattern. You're convicted by that at some point, you confess that to Him, He forgives it, you keep going on, and He keeps growing you and growing you and growing you. That's just normal Christianity. This is talking about the holding on to sin, excusing it, hiding it, not repenting of it, and this is the one who should be very concerned. You're trying to have it both ways, and God is jealous you're not stronger than him. He'll do something about that. Let the Lord's table be an examination, a reminder of where are you? Are you participating in Christ's death and his life, or are you participating in Satan's life? As Christians, most of you, most of us are not engaged in this kind of apostasy where we're holding on to sin, we're not repenting of it, we don't care, 
most of us aren't in that place. We sin, we're ashamed, we're convicted, we confess, we're forgiven, we keep putting on righteousness. So if that's you, help other brothers and sisters. If there are those trying to straddle the fence, if there are those trying to participate in the cup of blessing and in the cup of demons, seek to rescue your brother and sister. Remind them of passages like this. This is something that's prized in the Scripture. The one who rescues a brother or sister is blessed. Do that for one another. So again, in this meal, we learn something about loyalty to Christ. There's a second meal whereby we learn a lesson about loyalty. Meal number two, verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1 Meal number two, what an evangelistic meal teaches us about loyalty to other Christians. So there's a second meal mentioned in this passage. The first meal, Lord's table, consider your loyalty to Christ. Second meal, now let me tell you about another meal. You're invited over to an unbeliever's house, and there's some meat that another believer who's also been invited over to the house sees. He knows where it came from. He's troubled by it. What do you do? And this is Paul making his argument. All right, verse 23, all things are lawful. You see that in quotes. All things are lawful, and then Paul again says, but not all things are helpful. That all things are lawful is something that this Corinthian church used to say a lot. Here's another way of saying that. I can do that. I can do this as a Christian. Now, they, they said that earlier about sexual immorality, and Paul shut that down right away. Nope, can't do that. All things are lawful. And Paul says, but not all things are helpful. There might be things you are allowed to do that might not be helpful to another brother or sister. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, Paul said this before in 1 Corinthians. In this section, chapter 8, verse 1, he talked about love building up. So, again, so much of Corinthian Christianity was, was individualistic. I can do this. I don't care if you have a problem with it, brother or sister. And Paul's writing to say, no, 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 no. Your priority is to build up others, to protect others, to guard others. And so he uses a hypothetical meal that might come up to make that point. But before he gets into explaining that, he says this in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I told you before where Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, hey, you're free. You're free in Christ. Shackles are off. There's no judgment coming. You're not condemned. Now use your freedom to serve one another. That's what Christ did. He came free, son of God, and he served. He died to himself. He thought of the needs of others. Paul reminds the Galatians of that. Here he's reminding the Corinthians of this. And then he goes into the situation that could arise. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, you've got to understand this if you're going to understand this section of 1 Corinthians. He's been previously talking about them eating meat that is them engaging in the, the meals in an idol's temple. So they're literally in the temple, the meat's sacrificed to the idols, 
and they're eating there. And I told you, after those meals and after getting drunk, people would engage in sexual immorality at those temples as well. And he, he very clearly tells the Corinthians, you can't do that. You say you're free to do that. You know the idol's nothing. You can't do that. Here, we're not talking about meat that you are presently eating in an idol's temple. Some of that meat at those sacrifices would be kept for later, brought to these temple markets at right outside the main part of the temple, right, brought to these temple markets and sold in those markets later on for people to buy and eat. Paul's saying, you are allowed to eat that because you're not at the party. You're not at the sacrifice to the idol's temple. You can eat that. It's just meat. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. You can have a clear conscience and eat that meat, Paul says. And then he cites Psalm 24:1, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is helpful for us in today's day and age. We don't exist for the environment. The environment exists for us. God gave us the environment to benefit us, to eat from, to, to go and see and enjoy the beauty of. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and He gives it to people because He's good and kind. So He's saying, you can eat the meat that's offered in the marketplace, that you buy at the marketplace. Eat up. Eat up. But, <clears throat> verse 27 there's a scenario where you should refrain from eating. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So again, you sit there, an unbeliever's invited you over, hey, here's an evangelistic opportunity. All right, I'm at their house. They set out this big steak, and I'm like, oh, here we go. I mean, bib on, fork, knife. God the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, eat up. Verse 28, but you're not the only guest there. He's also invited another believer. And this believer has maybe a weaker conscience, an uninformed conscience, is troubled by this. Uh, do you, hey, psst, brother, sister, do you know where that meat was sold? Do you know where he bought this from? He bought it from the meat market. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, their conscience. He's already said in the previous verses, your conscience is free, eat up. But their conscience is troubled and as I told you before, as the Bible has said, you do not want to train a believer to go against their conscience. You don't want to train an unbeliever to go against their conscience. You don't want to train anybody to go against their conscience. But their conscience is troubled, and he's saying, don't help them go against their conscience. Don't eat. Don't eat. I do not mean your conscience, but his, he says in verse 28. Now, in today's day and age, so much, not so much, but, but there are often times when Christians can kind of have this attitude that whatever connects me to an unbeliever, I'm going to do. 
And here Paul would say, well, hold on. Because if someone sets food in front of you and you say, um, no, thank you. That's called rude. <laughs> it's rude. But Paul's saying, here, you would choose first, if you had to, to offend the, the unbeliever rather than the believer. The believer's conscience is troubled, and so many, I think, today might say, well, it's for evangelism. Get over it. I'm doing it. I'm able to do it. I'm doing it. That's the wrong move, according to God the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 10. You don't want to be offensive and offend unbelievers in an unnecessary way. I've told you before, the gospel is offensive enough. But there may be times when to protect another brother or sister, you cannot do what that unbeliever would want you to do. I can't do it. This is my brother or sister. I don't want to train them to go against their conscience. You can say that in a respectful way. I can't eat this. Can I explain to you why? That would be a good way to do it. But if you have to choose, you're going to offend the unbeliever rather than the believer. You don't want the unbeliever or the believer to have a conscience that's troubled, train them to go against their conscience, because that's not a good pattern to follow. Now there's a question here, and I believe in the context of this, it's Paul anticipating an objection or, or this believer who's able to eat. I mean, he's, he's got fork and knife in hand. And then Paul says, hold on a second, don't eat that because of this brother or sister. I believe this is Paul anticipating an objection. Why should my liberty to eat this beautiful steak, why should my liberty be determined by someone else over here's conscience? Another question. If I partake with thankfulness, I mean, Paul, have you read Psalm 24, 1? The earth is the Lord, this steak is mine. And I thank the Lord for this steak. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced, looked down upon, criticized? Because of that for which I gave thanks to the Lord. I mean, I ate and thanked the Lord. I recognized it not from my own hand, I recognized it from His hand. Why am I denounced? I love Paul's answer. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. What do you mean by that? Next verse. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. It's likely Paul was talking to Greek Christians who were able and knew, I'm a Christian now, I can eat this meat. I know an idol's nothing. I can eat it. I mean, God even said you can eat it if it's, if it's sold in the temple market. But do you know that Jewish rabbis taught that you couldn't eat meat, even the meat that was sold in the temple market? You couldn't eat that. So it's likely that there were Greek Corinthians who were saying, why should their dumb rule handcuff me from enjoying this steak? And Paul says, you eat and you glorify God, whether you eat or you drink. Don't give offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Greeks and Jews, we're not going to have a separate church service for you all in Corinth. You're going to come together. You need to learn to live with one another, to understand one another, to be gracious with one another, to look out for one another. Don't give offense to your brothers or sisters. 
That's what eating to the glory of God looks like. It's more, listen, it's more than just saying, thank you, God, for the food that you've given me. It's more than that, isn't it? It's looking out that you don't stumble one another in what you eat or what you drink. Verse 33, Paul's already tried to show himself as the example for living this way. He does it again here. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Here's what it all boils down to, selfishness. Will you die to self and not eat something that you are able to eat for the sake of someone else? And isn't that the essence of Christianity? As Christ came and lived and died for us, he then calls his followers to live and die for one another. We don't just stand on our own Christian liberties. We look out for how they might affect others. We make decisions day in and day out about what we're able to do, what we're going to choose not to do because of the sake of someone's conscience. That's, that's the way of Christ. It's not just the way of Paul. He says, be imitators of me. I've lived this way as I am of Christ. Now to hammer this home, let's go to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verse 13. Here's another church that had multiple cultures in it. Jews, Gentiles, way to kind of sum up everyone. Jews and Gentiles trying to get along. And uh, some of the people were saying, listen, you're able to eat meat. Why do you just stick to the veggie diet? You're able to eat meat. There's nothing spiritually wrong, spiritually wrong with eating meat. And Paul would say, you're right, there's nothing wrong with that. And the other group was saying, how can you be eating meat? You're not supposed to do that. Now, there's a right and a wrong in that. The right is they're able to eat meat. But some people were right in the wrong way. They weren't looking out for their brothers and sisters. And he writes about that early in chapter 14. And he says similar things to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look down at Romans 14, 13. (coughs) Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. You're able to eat that meat. That's code for that. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So if someone's troubled by that and they go ahead and eat it, they're eating something unclean because that's how they think of it. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So so much of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians is, He's doing this thing so that they may be saved. They may be saved. They may be saved. I don't think that's just evangelistic, like talking about unbelievers. I think it's talking about believers to persevere. Don't go against their conscience. Don't don't make shipwreck of their faith. I don't want to trouble their conscience. I want to make sure that they are saved. So do not let, verse 16, what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue not your own rights or your own stake. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Building up is a word that we've heard multiple times in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through 10. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything in, is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blesses the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So it, you can actually eat this meat. It, it, before God, it's okay to do. But if you think it's wrong and you do it, then that's sin. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating, his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Verse chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. There, there's, the path, there's the example right there. Jesus came and received the reproaches, the sin, the mocking, the curses, he received all of that for us. You can lay aside a meal if it troubles another brother or sister. You build them up. You protect them. You guard them. This is the way of Christ. That's why Paul says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of him. Follow me as I follow Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians. I don't remember the exact occasion, but I remember... Um, being in a social setting one time, this was years ago, um, being in a social setting one time where there are a number of Christians I trust and also apparently a number of professing Christians or people kind of gave the nod to Christianity, don't know exactly where all of them were. It was this social gathering, a lot of people I didn't really know, all kind of professing to be Christians. And the topic came up of would you drink wine if there was someone... Um, with you that struggle with alcoholism, um, there was another brother or sister. I'll never forget this, this lady who said, I would totally drink it. And she said, I'll never forget these words. <laughs> she said, Jesus drank wine, I'm going to drink the wine. Now, Jesus did drink wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine. The prohibition in Ephesians 5.18 is about getting drunk. But she said if it troubled another believer that was with her, she would still drink because Jesus did. That's the exact opposite of what 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 14 and Romans 15 teach. Jesus didn't make other brothers and sisters stumble. He did not do that. He laid aside his privileges to serve others. So let's just get this crystal clear. You're able to drink it. But in this situation, you wouldn't because of where it could lead another brother or sister. This passage, this meal, teaches us about loyalty to one another, care for one another, protection. 
for one another. So, brothers and sisters, make decisions about Christian liberty with other believers in mind. Now, I think it's helpful. First day of a new year, new page on the calendar. I think uniquely interesting God's providence that this serves as a good passage to look at on the first day of the new year. This whole section has been good to look at. As we start a new year, let me just ask these questions that I've asked of my own heart. Are you devoted to Christ alone? Is there any sin you're hiding, excusing? Are you making Satan happy in one area of your life and also coming to the Lord's table and claiming, I'm communing with Christ? That isn't true. It's not true worship. God's a jealous God. Are you devoted to Christ alone? Second, are you living in a way that seeks to win the lost? Throughout this section, Paul has talked about doing certain things and not doing certain things based on how that affects his evangelism. This is why we're here, to make Christ known. So I think as this section has reminded us, are you living in a way that seeks to win the lost? Don't get distracted into other pursuits. That's why we're here. The Great Commission tells Christians what we are here to do with this life. And so many of us have so many other cares and concerns that keep us from evangelism. Also in this section, there is a clear commitment to building up people in the body of Christ. How are you doing with that? Again, the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey all that He's commanded. This is what we do. We help to help one another grow, help one another continue on, help protect one another, help build one another up. This is what we do. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's why we've been gifted in certain ways. Every single believer given gifts by the Holy Spirit to help edify the body. But we get so caught up in our own lives and doing this and doing that, and even many good pursuits, but we don't often edify the body like we could. So I just wrap up three big truths that are given in chapter 8 through 11.1 and say, consider your devotion to Christ alone. Consider your desire to win the lost. And as Paul says in chapter 9, verse 23, and share with them in the blessings of God. So consider your devotion to God, your evangelism, and consider your edification of the body, building other brothers and sisters up. I think it's a good time to just think through those things. If you want it said in a simpler way, I'll give you three E's. <laughs> Exalt Christ, evangelize the lost, edify the church. This is clearly a priority to the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, thank you for shepherding us and for teaching us to be faithful disciples. I would think that every believer needs 1 Corinthians. We need to be told how to think rightly, how to think like Christ, not like the world. The world so often thinks selfishly, what can I do? What am I able to do? What are my rights? And as believers, we live for you. We live for others. We're willing to sacrifice. So I pray that that would be true of our hearts, that we would die to self, live for others, and in that way, follow Paul as he follows Christ. Father, as we also examine devotion to your Son, we We would ask you to continue to unite our hearts to you alone. 
Do not let there be anything that we hold on to in an unrepentant fashion that we excuse, no sin that we excuse, but keep us living faithfully for you, confessing sin when we sin, trusting you for forgiveness, and continuing on. We pray that to be true of this body. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.